Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke 22, verses 24 to 53. Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. First study one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three, time, three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he, he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is God's word. Thanks, Joy, for reading Scripture for us. Uh, as we begin our time together, let's commit this time to the Lord and let's pray together. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Gracious Father, we are so thankful that you are God who has spoken to us. Father, we thank you for revealing Christ to us in your Word. Father, as we come to Scripture this morning, we pray that you would quieten our hearts. We pray that you prepare us to receive from you Father, we pray that your Spirit would be poured out in greater measure, that we would have eyes to see, that we would have ears to hear. So, 
So Father, open our hearts to you now in this moment. Uh, help us to learn from you, to see Christ, to see our need of Him, and help us to draw near to you through your Son. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Well, good morning to all of you. It's good to gather with you uh, this Lord's Day. And uh, hello to those at home as well, watching the live stream. So what do you think is the world record for the most number of own goals scored in a football match? Five? Ten? Twenty? Well, the, the world record is 149. So yes, you heard right, the score at the end of the match was 149 to nothing. So this happened in 2002 between, uh, let me see if I'm pronouncing this right, between Edema and SOE in Madagascar's football league. Yes, they do have a football league in Madagascar. Uh, so apparently SOE, the, the team that scored 149 own goals, SOE was unhappy with the league's officials and they scored all these own goals in protest. <laughs> You know, spectators were so angry after the match that they, de that they demanded a refund. <laughs> you can imagine they would. So if you want to win a football match, right, pro tip, if you want to win a football match, uh, try not to score so many own goals. I think that would be a good place to start. And yet, in football as well as in life, we realize that many of our struggles are actually self-inflicted. You know, often it can feel as though we are our biggest... Obstacle. Right? Humanity has this tragic tendency to create its own problems. In, in the famous words of cartoonist Walt Kelly, uh, you know, some of you may have seen this, he says, we have met the enemy and he is us. So we come to the point in Luke's Gospel where the darkness is growing. Having eaten the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus is about to be betrayed, arrested, tried and sentenced to death. And Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders is reaching crisis point. It will soon come to a head with his crucifixion. You know, but at the crucial moment, you know, when it matters the most, at that crucial point, all the disciples will fail. They will fail their master. You know, instead of stepping up, they run away and they're nowhere to be found. In our passage, Luke presents a very honest picture of the disciples' struggles and failures. You know, perhaps we can identify with these disciples. I don't know what your week was like for many of you. you know, I had a really tough week. I had a really rough week. You know, I think this week especially, I, I felt very keenly my own failings and my own stumbles and weaknesses. You know, maybe you felt the same way this past week or maybe this past month. You know, if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we would say that we, we blow hot and cold, don't we, in our discipleship. Some days are better than others. You know, we feel our weaknesses continually as we stumble and fall. And I think, again, if we're honest with ourselves, we would say we often get in the way of our own discipleship. So I think these disciples are a very potent example of what that looks like. But friends, our insufficiency is an opportunity for Jesus to display His sufficiency. You know, like these disciples, we realize that we have no power to save ourselves. We have no power to even keep ourselves faithful. You know, this passage turns our focus off of ourselves and onto Christ, where our focus should really be. This passage urges us to look to the one who never fails, to look to Jesus because He is the servant King and He invites us to forsake our pride and self-reliance and to depend on Him. Jesus is in the final stages of His journey to the cross and He calls us to follow Him by humble service, by dependent prayer and by realizing our need for His mercy. And those are the three points that we will reflect on this morning. Humble service, dependent prayer, and realizing our need for His mercy. 
So, follow Jesus by humble service, verses 24 to 30. So, this passage follows Jesus uh, celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples in verses 14 to 23. And in those verses, Jesus has spoken very plainly about his death, his coming death. You know, he said to his disciples that his body will be broken, his blood will be shed. And indeed, the, the Passover meal points to Jesus' supreme sacrifice of himself for the sake of others. And, and in one of the saddest turns in the storyline of Luke's Gospel, the meal that was an emblem of sacrifice, of fellowship and the unity of God's people, that meal, sadly, quickly degenerates into quarreling among the disciples. You know, it's like we, we come to church on Sunday, right? And you know, we, we sing, well, no, we can't sing, but you know, we, we listen to singing of songs together, we pray, we hear the sermon, and imagine we all go into the car park and we fight over parking. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening here. With, with the Passover meal, the, the disciples start quarreling among themselves. And, and Luke tells us a dispute also arose among them and they were fighting about which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Verse 24. Now, Jesus had just predicted that one of them would betray him and perhaps each one of them was very keen to prove his worth to Jesus. You know, maybe each one of them was saying, I'm the greatest, it can't be me. It must be you who will betray Jesus. It can't be me. So it is painfully ironic, friends, that right after Jesus had told them about his sacrificial death, his disciples are jostling for position and prominence, for influence, for power. And I think this meal leaves the disciples very exposed. Right? It exposes the condition of their hearts. Each made much of his own gifting, his own abilities, his own maturity, his own accomplishments, each felt entitled to some form of recognition and acclaim. But friends, when we seek to make a name for ourselves, we rob God of glory. We, we say it's all about me, myself and I, and we leave God out of it. So instead of glorifying Him who is alone worthy of worship, we make it all about us. And such selfish ambition, Jesus says, is worldly. Right? He says in uh, it says in this verse, verses, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So Jesus is talking about the culture in which they live. Right? So in, in New Testament times, uh, they, they practiced this system of patronage, and they had people called benefactors. So benefactors were generally people who had wealth, who had power and prestige in Roman society. And benefactors loved doing favours for others, especially others from the lowest, the lowest social classes. And benefactors didn't do this because they were altruistic, nice people. Benefactors did this because they knew that if they did favours for the lower classes, the lower classes would owe them. They would have a hold over the lives of these lower classes and they could count on the support of these lower classes when the time came. So, so benefactors were actually very political people. They, they knew that if I spend my money here, if I help this person here, this person owes me. And I've kind of bound this person for life, that he will then serve me. So basically, everyone wanted to be a benefactor, right? Because to be a benefactor was to have people serve you. It was to use your power and be served in return. So Jesus says, that's the culture that you live in. Don't be like that. Don't do as your culture tells you to do. My friends, we, we jostle for power because we want others to serve us. We strive to be at the top of the pile. Right? I mean, most of us would say it is better to be a boss and have others work for you than to work for others. But Jesus says we should be different if we follow him. Verse 26. Not so with you. Not so with you. you know, rather let the greatest among you become as one, become as the youngest. Right? So I know in our culture we celebrate babies, right? We we put their, we put their photographs on the slide and, and we pray for most excellent Theophilus. <laughs> You know, but but in, the, in the New Testament times, right, the, you know, they, they would ignore young, young children. Right? Young children were sort of 
seen but not heard. Right? They were kind of not, not bothered with them because they were insignificant in that sense. They didn't belong to the adult world of conversations and activities. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, then become as the one who is most inferior, as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. And I, I think that's a wonderful definition of leadership. I think Jesus redeems the, tight, the term leadership. Because you know, leadership can be very worldly, but Jesus says, this is my definition of leadership, is the one who serves. Right? So, so that's a very good working definition for what it means to lead. We are the one who serves. So according to Jesus, leading means serving. Authority is not to be abused, but sadly it is. We see it all around us. But authority is not to be abused, but to be used for the good of others. Leadership among the people of God should be distinct from the world. But friends, sadly, this is often an area where the church resembles the world. Even among faithful Bible-preaching churches, oftentimes the world sneaks in through the leadership, through the way we think about leadership. You know, maybe it's because Christians, churches, they, they want to appear respectable in the eyes of the world. Therefore, because we want to be respectable, we, we choose leaders based on their worldly accomplishments. Leaders that the world will respect in that sense because they're successful in the world. This, is, this isn't new. It goes back millennia. Right? Uh, Israel wanted a king like all the nations. Israel wanted a king that had impressive worldly credentials, that had impressive worldly accomplishments. And we know how that turned out. Or maybe we adopt worldly leadership structures that are more corporate than Christ-like. We adopt worldly criteria for assessing leaders. You know, one, I, I came across this job description of a large and influential church describing their senior pastor role. And, and they say this, this man will have the ability, quote, the ability to dream and cast vision. He will be a proven leader of leaders who can motivate and inspire high-capacity men and women to use their gifts to further the vision. Of course, they don't say whose vision. Now, is it any wonder that if, if we adopt such criteria for thinking about leadership, we end up with CEOs rather than shepherds? And I speak here to my fellow elders in particular. Now, Jesus calls us to be humble, to be servant-hearted. If you want a job description for elder, it's this. A leader is one who serves, not one who seeks to be served. And my exhortation to the members of this church is, is we need to pray. We need to pray to ask, ask God to raise up such servant-hearted leaders for His church. And what we can do as members of this church is to encourage servant-hearted leaders by praying for them. Don't, don't dishearten them with criticism and distrust. Instead, follow them as they follow Christ, as they lead you to follow Christ. So friends, if we aspire to lead, then we must be willing to serve. So if we aspire to lead, we must be willing to serve. So when we look for potential elders, what do we look for? Basically, when we look for potential elders, we look for men who are already already pouring themselves out to serve others and build them up. We're looking for men who serve. That, that's who we ought to be looking for when we look for potential elders. Basically, we're looking out for men who would be happy to keep serving in this way even if they don't have a formal title. Men who would be happy to keep serving in this way even if no one else in the church notices. So if a man wants to lead for the sake of a title or recognition, then he isn't suitable to lead. Jesus calls us to follow him by humbly serving others. You know, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Right? Jesus takes the definition of leadership, one who serves, and he applies it to himself in verse 27. 
Right? He says to his disciples, I am among you. You know this among you, not, not lording over you, but I'm among you as one who serves. Right? That, that's where we get the word deacon. Right? Deacon is servant. So de- Jesus is saying to them, I'm deaconing among you. I'm like a deacon among you. I'm one who serves. You know, be- because Jesus gave his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Whether you are in formal leadership or not, this is the call that Jesus makes to all of us because we follow him and we should look like him. And, and this is true outside of the church as well. So, so think about this, right? Think, think about one who serves. What, what would this look like for us as we parent? What, what would this look like for us in the way we treat our co-workers at work? What would this look like for us in the way we relate to our friends, our family members? You know, if God has placed us in a position of leadership at home, at school, or at work, then how will we use the authority that God has entrusted to us to serve others? Because a leader is one who serves. You know, but some of us might be thinking, oh, this, isn't, this, this sounds this, this really good sounding, very idealistic, but it doesn't work, right? You know, maybe some of us may be thinking, yeah, this is good in a kind of nice, perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world, obviously. And if I live in this way, then I'll lose out, right? I'll be, I'll be a doormat. Everyone will step all over me, right? Uh, I, won't, I won't advance in my career. My things won't work out, right? So maybe that's what we're thinking, that, that this is just impractical. My friends, you know, notice Jesus follows on this exhortation with verses 28 to 30. And Jesus says to us that we, we don't have to make a name for ourselves because the name that he gives us is much better. So this, this call to, to pour ourselves out to serve others is, is really a call for us to trust in Jesus. As we look at verses 28 and 30, Jesus is saying to us, trust me that I'm going to give you a kingdom. And therefore, you don't have to make a name for yourself. You can actually let it go and trust that I will honour you. Jesus says to his disciples, if we persevere with him, then we shall be glorified with him. Right? He says in verses 28 to 30, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So you see how misguided the disciples are? You know, they're, they're fighting over who's the greatest. And Jesus tells them, look, if, if you trust me, you'll all be great in my Father's kingdom because I will give you a kingdom. So why are you squabbling among yourselves, fighting for power and influence among yourselves, where you can simply trust me to give you a kingdom. Friends, this is a, this is a wonderful invitation for us to serve because when we serve, we, we let ourselves go. Right? We, we, we free ourselves and we freely give ourselves for the good of others. You know, the, the hope of the gospel liberates us from self-centeredness and selfish ambition. The gospel frees us from having to make a name for ourselves because Jesus gives us the name that is far better. And the gospel frees us to pour ourselves out for the good of others without any expectation of return, without any ulterior motive, without any hidden agenda like the benefactors. The gospel frees us to put others first and to trust Jesus to take care of us. So really, this call to humble service is a call to trust Jesus and to know that He gives us a name. We can trust in Him for that. Second point, second point uh, of reflection from this text is to follow Jesus by dependent prayer. We look at verses 31 to 46. So Jesus' disciples are to serve humbly, but they're also to pray. And prayer is a demonstration of our humility because prayer is the acknowledgement that we need God's help, right? So prayerlessness is often a sign of pride. So if we, if we don't pray, you know, perhaps it's because we don't think we need help, that we think that we're fine without God, we can get by with life 
just okay. And you see, in this passage, the disciples are self-confident and self-sufficient. And so they need to learn the lesson of dependence on God, especially because of what they will face. Jesus warns Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And, and the you here in verse 31 is plural. So, so Jesus is saying not just to Simon, but to all of the disciples that Jesus demands to have, all, or rather Satan demands to have all of you. Right? He, he will shake your faith and cause you, and, and he wants to cause you to forsake me. So that's the, that's the challenge that the disciples will face. You know, but how Peter, however, is so self-assured that he proudly proclaims his loyalty. Right? He says to Jesus in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Right? Lots of kind of bravado in, in, in Peter's statement to Jesus. Right? Lord, I will serve you. I will never leave you. But Jesus, who knows all things, predicts Peter's fall in verse 34. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Right? I think it's interesting that Jesus mentions a rooster because maybe a rooster is kind of known to be a pretty, it looks like a proud animal, kind of strutting about with his chest out. So Peter has lots of self-confidence, but no self-awareness. <laughs> so friends, Peter is a striking example for us, right? I think Peter kind of, it's this example where we, we think, do we look like Peter? How might we look like Peter? Have we become complacent like Peter? Now, do we think that we won't fall into serious sin? Ask yourself, right? do, do I think that I'm immune from serious sin? Are we thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought? You know, lately we've, had, we've seen a, a series of high-profile Christians uh, falling into serious sin. And so how, how do we respond when we come across news like that? I, I think this passage uh, exhorts us to not point the finger at others in self-righteous judgment but to humbly consider the condition of our own hearts. What is the state of our hearts before God? You know, none of us, none of us is immune from temptation and sin. You know, none of us is immune from falling into serious sin. And, and it's dangerous when we think we're fine, that we'll never fall. I think that's why Scripture includes warnings for us uh, in other passages. Like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. 2 Corinthians 13, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Friends, these are sobering words, but these are words that we need to hear. As a, as a Greek philosopher said, right, the unexamined life is not worth living. So we, we need to take stock. How, how, are, how are our hearts doing before God today? Before Him this morning? You know, at the crucial moment, Peter will stumble. But the good news is that Peter will persevere. Right? But not because Peter is strong, but because Jesus is a faithful and merciful Savior. Right? And he tells Peter in verse 32, I have prayed for you. I think that's, that's, those are amazing words, right? I, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Friends, what, what a comfort and encouragement this is to us. Even when we struggle and stumble, we have a helper who never fails to pray for us. Right? If, if the if our spiritual health ultimately depended on the health of our prayer life, I would say all of us are in serious trouble. <laughs> right? So if, the, if our spiritual health ultimately depended on the consistency and regularity of our prayer life, all of us are in trouble. But praise God that we have a helper who prays for us. 
So even as we struggle, even as we stumble, we, we have a helper who, who keeps praying that our faith may not fail. And that's why we persevere, because Jesus prays that we persevere. And thanks to Him, we can get up after we fall. Jesus is our hope, and He is the one who gives us strength to stand. He is our great high priest, the one who intercedes for us. I think one of the most encouraging passages in Hebrews is in Hebrews 7, where the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Why? Because He lives, He always lives, to make intercession for them. Friends, this is the glory of Christ. Right? This is why the resurrection of Christ is such a comfort to believers. Because if Jesus is raised, then He always lives. And if Jesus always lives, always pray for us, His people. Friends, this, this is the supreme comfort of the gospel that we have a high priest in Christ who never fails to intercede on our behalf. He prays that our faith may not fail. I love the words from this hymn, right? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So friends, do, do you feel your, your struggle this morning? As, as, you, as you come, have you, have you gone through a really tough week? Have your prayers this past week been patchy at best? Maybe you even struggle to know where to begin, to even know what to ask for in your prayers. Maybe you feel that you can't even pray. Well, friends, this is the comfort of the gospel for all of us. You come to Jesus. He prays for us. Friends, don't, don't forget that we have a great high priest who, who loves us and, and who, who always intercedes on our behalf. You know, Satan means to destroy Peter's faith, but God will use it for Peter's good. Verse 32, Jesus promises Peter, when you have turned again, right? That, that's, that's a wonderful assurance of repentance, right? That Peter will turn. Not if, but when you have turned again. Strengthen your brothers. So Jesus assures Peter that he will repent and that he will be restored. And when he is restored, Peter will be used by God to encourage others. Peter has hope. God brings us low. I, feel, I felt that God did this to me this week. Right? God, God brings us low, not to break us, but to grow us. In the hands of a loving and sovereign God, sifting doesn't destroy us, but sifting sanctifies us. It turns us away from ourselves and towards Christ in humble faith and radical dependence. And then Jesus says, interestingly, it is then, after we have turned, that we are better able to help others. You know, friends, the, the best encouragers are those not, not, are not those with impressive spiritual credentials. Right? The, the best encouragers are not those who put up a front of a perfect life. Right? The, the best encouragers are those who feel their need for Christ. The, the best encouragers are those who themselves have been humbled by Christ. The best encouragers are those who see that they need mercy as well that they need a high priest to pray for them. Those, friends, are the best encouragers. And this is how Jesus is preparing Peter for ministry. Right? You, know, you, don't go, you don't go to seminary, you don't, you, don't get a, you don't get a whole bunch of impressive worldly credentials. No, you prepare for ministry by stumbling and falling, right? by, by sensing your need for mercy, your own need for mercy and help. That's, friends, how you prepare for ministry. So friends, don't, don't hide our weaknesses and sins from one another. 
You know, others will be encouraged to cling to Christ when they see His mercy at work in our lives. His grace is sufficient for us. And when we speak openly of our weaknesses and of our need for grace, we glorify Christ because we show that His power is made perfect in our weakness. I think that's why Paul boasts of his weaknesses. He doesn't parade his CV, but he says, I'm weak. Christ gets all the glory. So we need, to pray, we need to prayerfully depend on Jesus because we will suffer for the sake of the gospel. In verses 35 to 36, Jesus tells his disciples to be, to be prepared for more opposition and hardship. Previously, they could count on the hospitality of strangers, but things will change. In verse 36, Jesus says, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Right? Be prepared for hardship. Be prepared for tough times, tougher times. Jesus is not telling them to arm themselves, right? Not, he's not saying to go buy swords and you know, amass an arsenal for, an, for a worldly war. But rather, Jesus is giving the instruction of buying a sword in a figurative sense. The sword represents opposition. The sword represents persecution and hardship. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, be prepared to suffer for my sake. Be prepared for greater spiritual conflict for my sake. But again, you know, the disciples are a bit blur, so they don't get it, right? So the disciples kind of, oh, we've got two swords. <laughs> so they take up these two swords and they show Jesus, hey, we've got two swords. And Jesus is probably like, you know, face palm, right? So Jesus says, it is enough, right? Stop it, right? You've got it all wrong, right? I'm not, I'm not talking to you about some worldly war, but, but this spiritual conflict. So don't show me these physical swords, right? It's enough, stop it. So why would we face more trouble? It's, it's because we follow a crucified Christ, right? Jesus explains the reason why they are to expect more suffering in verse 37. He says, For I tell you, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now, that's taken from Isaiah 53, uh, the servant song that speaks of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is the suffering servant who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53. He is the one who will be despised and rejected. He is the man of sorrows. He will be acquainted with grief. So following Jesus means sharing in his suffering. Following Jesus means following a crucified Christ. And that's what he's trying to say to his disciples. Be prepared for more conflict because you follow one who was crucified. And therefore, he urges his disciples to pray. Right? Verses 39 to 46 are, are, are really verses that encourage us to pray. And these verses are bracketed by the command, pray. Right? Verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then verse 46, like book ending that passage, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus says it twice. Tough times are coming. And tough times tempt us to deny Jesus or compromise the truth of the gospel so that others will approve of us. Right? We, we don't want to suffer, basically. So in order to be, in order to be accepted by others, in order to have the approval of others, we might be tempted to compromise on the truth of the gospel. You know, maybe we won't say that. Maybe we'll leave that out. Or maybe, maybe I just won't say, maybe I just won't tell anyone that I'm a Christian. Tough times might tempt us to give up living for Jesus because it's too difficult. Right? We, we, as, as we suffer, as we struggle, we might feel this is tough. Right? It's too much. I, I, I want to stop following Jesus. Tough times might tempt us to blend in with the world because it's easier to fit in than to be distinct. And that's why we need to pray, friends. We need to pray because we don't have the strength to live faithful lives in tough times. And Jesus says, pray so that God will give us the strength to stand. But again, the disciples fail. Jesus finds them sleeping because they are overwhelmed by sorrow. And the only one praying in this passage is Jesus. Jesus remains faithful. 
right? He, he shows us what persevering in prayer looks like. Kneeling down not too far from the disciples, Jesus prays in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The prospect of drinking the cup weighs heavily on Jesus. What is the cup? The cup is an Old Testament image of God's judgment and wrath against sin. For example, in, in Psalm 75, it says, In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. It's the cup of God's wrath. But the amazing thing in this passage is that the, the cup of wrath is drunk not by us, because we deserve it, but by, it's drunk by one who doesn't deserve it, by Jesus. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath on our behalf if we trust him, so that we don't have to. So we deserve the cup because all of us have sinned against God. Like the disciples, we've all failed Jesus. None of us has been a perfect disciple. And God, who is perfectly holy and righteous, He, he will punish sin. But God, who is full of grace, mercy, and love, He sent His Son precisely for the purpose of drinking the cup for us. And Jesus takes God's judgment for us so that we can be forgiven and brought back to God if we trust in Him. And friends, we can be saved because Jesus submitted to His Father. And by His faithfulness, Jesus saves the unfaithful. And that's us. Humbling Himself, He took the form of a servant and He obeyed to the uttermost, even to the point of dying on the cross. So as, as Jesus prays, he, he models for us what believing prayer looks like. Right? That the aim of prayer is not to untwist God into doing what we want, but the aim of prayer is to align our wills with God's will. Prayer is not about trying to change God's mind, but prayer is about pouring out our hearts to a loving Father and trusting that He is able to change us trusting that He is able to bend our wills to conform to His so that we live lives that are pleasing to Him. Prayer changes us so that we can say with all joy and gladness, not my will, but yours be done. And that's why we pray. Because every time we pray, we are inviting God to work in us, to work through us for His sake. And so we keep praying for His strength to do that. Friends, this is the blessedness of prayer. We can trust our Heavenly Father to do what is right for our good and for His glory. So finally, to wrap up point three, we follow Jesus by realizing our need for mercy. You know, these verses, verses 47 to 65, they depict the faithlessness of Jesus' disciples. Judas fails, right? he betrays his master for money. He sends the Jewish religious leaders to arrest Jesus. And when, and when they show up at the Mount of Olives, uh, the rest of the disciples are ready to fight for Jesus. Right? One of them, uh, Peter, draws his sword and cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant. John's Gospel tells us this servant's name was Malchus. So Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Peter's all ready to fight for Jesus, right? And again, you see how the disciples fail to understand who Jesus is and what He's come to do. The disciples still think that the way to establish God's kingdom is by fighting, is by physical means. They fail to understand that Jesus is the King who must suffer and die in order to establish the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says to them right away, Stop it! No more of this! Verse 51. Jesus says the kingdom of God doesn't come by earthly violence. Right? The kingdom of God doesn't come by acts of terrorism. The kingdom of God is not established by taking lives. In fact, the kingdom of God is established 
by the laying down of lives for the sake of others. So Jesus heals the servant, showing his love and compassion for his enemies. And Jesus lets himself be arrested like a sheep led to the slaughter. And meanwhile, Peter follows at the distance. Right? One who so boldly declared his readiness to die for Jesus now cowers far behind. All alone and not having prayed, Peter exposes himself to Satan's sifting and his boast about staying with Jesus will soon prove to be hot air. Not once, but three times, Peter fails. Peter denies Jesus. You know, overcome by disappointment, despair and fear, he also betrays his Lord, just like Judas. And, and right on schedule, the rooster crows, just as Jesus had predicted. Jesus is still the Lord. He still knows all that will happen. He's still in full control. And at that moment, when Peter denies Jesus for the third time, the Lord looked, turned and looked at Peter. Verse 61. Now, I believe this wasn't a look of contempt. You know, this wasn't a look of anger. But this was a look of compassion and mercy. Jesus, even in this darkest of moments, Jesus still loves his disciples. Jesus perseveres with them in love. His disciples may be wayward, but he remains faithful to them. Peter was running away from Jesus, but this look from Jesus stops Peter in his tracks. It's a look of mercy. It's a look of compassion. It, it's an invitation to find forgiveness. And, and this look cuts Peter to the heart. Right? I, I think oftentimes it is not, uh, it, it's not the law that really brings true conviction, but, but it's, it's the grace of God that convicts us and helps us to see our need for Him. So Peter is cut to the heart, convicted of his own sin. Peter sees his need for mercy and he weeps bitterly. And, and the weeping is a sign that Peter is beginning to turn back to Jesus. Now, in, in one of Peter's earlier encounters with Jesus in, in, the, in the earlier parts of Luke's Gospel, Luke, Luke 5 verse 8, Peter says this to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. So at the beginning, Peter saw his own sinfulness. But in the meantime, something's happened, right? Between chapter 5 and chapter 22, it seems like Peter has lost that sense of his need for mercy. You know, maybe it's true that maybe the longer we are a Christian, the less, perhaps the less we see our need for Jesus. You know, we, we think that we're fine. Maybe we don't see our need for His grace. And Peter needs to fall in order to help him to realize that he is a sinner saved by grace alone. And Peter did turn. That's the good news. Peter did turn. And Peter did strengthen his brothers. You know, how do we know this? You just read his letter, 1 Peter. I think if you look at 1 Peter 5, I think that's a very clear indication of Peter's repentance. Right? He writes to the elders right, of, of the church in Central Asia and he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Right? Notice he calls himself a fellow elder, not even an apostle. A fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Not, not, of, not of Christ's military power, but, but the sufferings of the Saviour. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And he says to these elders, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Serve, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, right? because leaders are ones who serve, but being examples to the flock. I think this is the clearest indication in Scripture of Peter's repentance, his complete change of heart, and this is how he's strengthening the brothers. Friends, the good news for us is that Peter's Saviour is ours too if we trust in Him. Jesus is still the same. He is still full of grace and compassion for helpless sinners, for those of us who stumble 
through our lives, do we realize our need for mercy from Jesus? Yes, we will fall. Yes, we will score many, many own goals. We have met the enemy and he is us. But the good news is that God will bring us to an end of ourselves to show us our need for him. And God works through our weaknesses to help us to see our need for Jesus. And we follow him not because we are faithful, but we follow him because he is faithful. And Jesus meets our failure and faithlessness with his forgiveness. And may we keep trusting in him. I want to close by reading for us this wonderful doxology from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give you thanks indeed that though we are faithless and we are often unfaithful, you remain faithful for you do not change and you cannot deny yourself. And Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace and for your mercies in Christ. Father, as we come to you now, we confess our own pride, our self-confidence, our self-sufficiency. Father, we bring these sins to you now and we pray that you would have mercy on us. Father, help us to see us, see ourselves for who we truly are, sinners saved by your grace alone. Help us to see you for who you truly are, a God who is full of grace and mercy, a God who has sent your only Son for us and for our salvation. So Father, in this moment, we pray that you would humble us we pray that you would dismantle any sinful pride that exists in our hearts. We pray that you would bring us low, that you may exalt Christ in us. So Father, we come, we confess, and Father, we repent. Help us, Father, to be those who turn away from ourselves and to be those who turn to you through your Son so that we might find grace and help in our time of need. Strengthen us, Father, we pray, for Jesus' sake, because He is the faithful one. And because He prays for us, we can come and ask of You boldly, knowing that we have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf before Your throne. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.